We could talk about it on the show. But we should. You've, you've been playing golf with Not Another Politics Podcast branded golf equipment. That's uh... It's a big deal. <laughs> and I feel like I hit the ball a little straighter and a little bit farther when I was playing with the branded balls as opposed to when I was playing <laughs> oh my with goodness. the unbranded balls. <laughs> they would always reach the bottom line. <laughs> I think we've already started the show. I think we, we, I think so. maybe, we just skip the, maybe we just skip the introduction this time. <laughs> All right, good episode, guys, I think. Is this what other podcasts are like? You know, they just get like a comedian who just gets their friends together and they just sit around and shoot the breeze for an hour. There are that's, a lot of those, I think. That's probably, yeah. I mean, we're not, we're not professional comedians, so those are probably funnier than this. But otherwise, it seems, like, it seems <laughs> like everyone has a podcast and they just, they sit around and shoot the breeze as far as I can tell. That's not what we do. We look at scholarship. And that's why... We are not another, not another politics, politics. politics podcast. Oh, we nailed it. That was, that was our best. <laughs> <laughs> there was. There was. So uh, I'm Will Howell. I'm Anthony Fowler. And I'm Viola Giuda. And this is not another politics podcast. So guys, we have uh, midterm elections coming. Democrats started feeling a little bit more optimistic because they passed some bills recently. The motion is adopted. Tonight, Democrats celebrating a hard-fought victory, passing the Inflation Reduction Act, which will increase taxes on large corporations, allow Medicare to negotiate the costs of prescription drugs, and it makes massive investments in cutting greenhouse gas emissions. It is really a cause for celebration. But on the other hand, we have a lot of issues with the economy going on. Sure, unemployment is extremely low and it's very hard to find workers. But on the other hand, inflation is quite high and there's no end in sight right now. I wonder what all this tells us about uh, Democrats' prospects in the upcoming election. It's a really important question. And it speaks to some foundational issues, right, that political scientists have explored for a long time about the relationship between the economy and the prospects for the majority party to hold seats in power. We thought it would be worthwhile to bring up a classic written by Gerald Kramer, who was a professor for many years at Caltech. And the paper we're looking at was published in the APSR, the American Political Science Review, in 1971. It's called Short-Term Fluctuations in U.S. Voting Behavior, 1896 to 1964. So it's got a kind of sweeping account. So what he does in this paper is try to systematically evaluate the relationship between changes in various dimensions of the economy and changes in the two-party vote share of the incumbent, the majority party, over the better part of a century. He's not the first person to investigate this substantive question, but this paper is an early intervention that's trying to do so really systematically and to look in particular at how changes in unemployment rates or in personal income affect electoral outcomes, each holding the other constant. So we can assess which dimension of the economy seems to be doing the most work in affecting electoral outcomes. And so, you know, he's doing it at a time when there isn't much computing power, <laughs> you know, bless him. He, this, was a, this was a heavy lift at the time, uh, but it's an, it's an early effort to do so by, by estimating some regressions. We're not talking about a massive data set here. We're talking about each row of the data set is just one election year. But nevertheless, do we, do we actually know how he was running, how he was doing these analyses in the 60s and early 70s? <laughs> I, I bet on pen and paper. If someone knows, please write to us and tell us what was Gerald Kramer doing? Was he using a computer at all when he wrote this paper? So this wasn't an easy task at the time. 
Not at all. And you see in the presentation of the paper, him sort of explaining to his readership, this is what a regression is. I mean, and here are what these coefficients are, how they're derived, and what they might mean. And so in that sense, not a lot has changed at the APSR. No, that's true. We're still doing that. <laughs> We're still doing that. <laughs> so what he does, though, is he looks at changes in different measures of the economy. We can talk about what those measures are. In the year preceding a congressional election, and then relates those changes to the vote share of the incumbent party to see how well they did. When the Democrats are in control and the economy is doing reasonably well, um, whether or not that redounds to their electoral benefit. Mind you, when, they, when he says Democrats are in control, what he means actually is not that the Democrats have a majority of the seats of the House, which are the, the, the elections that he's looking at, but rather whether or not the Democrat occupies the White House. Why, why should the economy matter? I'm told that everyone just votes for the same party, that we're all just partisans and you're born with either a D or an R tattooed somewhere on your, you know. <laughs> he even has a line in there talking about how, you know, realistically, a rational self-interested voter might, uh, might not really think it's all that relevant that like, you know, there's just not that big of a difference between the parties. He has something like, there might be no relevant party or team platforms to compare. Because there might not be these really distinct differences between Democrats and Republicans, maybe it makes sense to just vote on the basis of like who's doing a better job in terms of running things and you know generating good economic outcomes. Certainly, nobody would write something like that today. And yet, even today, with pretty divergent party platforms, there might still be a good reason to vote on the basis of how the economy is going. Yes, yeah, so Viola, what's the what's a sketch of a theory that would suggest that? changes in economic performance or changes in any the performance on any sort of conceivable domain ought to bear on my future electoral fortunes. Yeah, I think, uh, like you mentioned, he starts with an observation that uh, voters are busy and perhaps they have hard time finding party platforms or party platforms don't seem to be very different, but perhaps the, they are just too busy to really follow those party platforms. But there's some data that's easily available, and that's the data about uh, your income and whether you're employed and the prices that you're paying at the store. So at the minimum, because the data just you know, hits you on the head, whether you plan to vote or not, you should have this data available. So if you plan to vote, you might try to draw inference from this voting. And he doesn't deny that there are many factors that might affect uh, voting behavior other than uh, the economy, but he says, presumably, uh, if the economy improves during the current presidential term, then to some extent we could uh, assign it as a positive sign of uh, something that we like about the president. And he's not very, he's not talking too much about what this something is. He's not talking about ability or quality, but, but that's how we would uh, interpret it today. We would say perhaps certain presidents are more able than others. Perhaps they are better at reading the economy and figuring out which policies are the best, or perhaps they are better at actually organizing Organizing the congressional action and passing policies that are adequate for the current circumstances. No matter what that is, this ability is likely to persist. So by looking at the performance of the economy in the past, we can somehow predict to some extent the performance in the future. 
And if we are satisfied with the fast, then it's a better bet to go with the guy that we are satisfied with than to gamble on someone who, you know, whom we don't have so much information, at least about the latest performance. So what does he find? What's the big, you know, what's the big takeaway from this? The big findings are he looks at changes in prices, in real income, and in unemployment, and in monetary income. And again, it's always in the year preceding a house election. And then finds, for the most part, uh, effects that are consistent with our expectations. They're reasonably large effects when it comes to income. That is, when incomes go up, the majority party does better in those elections. When prices go up, the majority party doesn't do so well. The recovered estimates as they relate to unemployment appear to be flat. That is, he doesn't see much evidence that reductions in unemployment redound to the benefit of the majority party who occupies the, the, the House. And it's worth noting, at this moment in 2022, wherein inflation appears to be high, income, we don't see big growth on income, but unemployment is really low. If you take his model, Kramer's model seriously, that doesn't bode especially well on net for the Democratic Party. Yeah, so one, one interesting thing about unemployment is that uh, in his regressions, he actually doesn't show us what's the correlation between unemployment and the voucher, not controlling for all these other measures. Again, this is, uh, this is a paper from 50 years ago. Right now, we would have an appendix of 50 pages where all those regressions are shown to us to just give us a better picture. But my, my guess would be that unemployment itself could be, could be actually somehow related to the vote share of the incumbent. But in his regressions, this entire effect goes through income. So presumably, in most cases, when you have low unemployment, income goes up whether because people are employed or because there's more pressure on wages, and then this effect would be captured by the uh, monetary income. But it's, it's, it's a very interesting picture that's being painted, and I think it's actually very reasonable if you think about unemployment and prices, for example. You know, I'm happy that unemployment is very low, but most of the people most of the time have a job. So they are actually not affected directly by the unemployment figure, while prices are the thing that we see every day when we go to the to the store. So and, and so most of the voters are actually affected in changes in prices. So so in this analysis seems to be really getting results that if we thought very carefully we would expect. Okay, I'm not sure I expect these results. How much influence do members of the House generally do, does the majority party in particular in the House actually have on these economic indicators? I mean, should we, do we really believe that the actions that they're taking, the policies that they're passing, bears in a systematic and profound way on the economy? Two, it's, it's odd that all the changes that he's looking at, and mind you, it's not just a story about Kramer, this is a story about a whole literature, and they've looked at this empirically. It's odd to me that the effects are concentrated in the year leading up to an election, as opposed to thinking about the entire duration of a congressional term. Right? When you think about whether or not I should be reappointed, you should all look at you know, my record of accomplishments while occupying office. But they're focusing in on the months, really just the months leading up to an election. Both of those seem curious, no? Yeah, I share, I share your concerns. Let me offer a few potential responses to them. So one is that it could be that we don't know. It could be that there's not a whole lot the president can do to, to, to dramatically affect the you know, real incomes in the very short term. And these are members of the House. 
Remember, these are members. Of the, it's not the presidents. What the presidents doing? Members of the House. Well, okay, yes, but well, it's it, well, you're voting for. So, so the finding is that your vote, you 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 vote more for the party of the president when when the incomes or when real incomes are good, and and vote against the party of the president. And so, a vote for a House member who's of the president's party is kind of supporting that president's agenda. So you're voting for that party as a whole, right? It, the short answer could be that we actually don't know for sure how much control presidents have. We know they have some. We know there are things the presidents can do that would be good for the economy or bad for the economy. And we know that it's a very noisy signal, but nevertheless, it's rational to, you know, it's rational to respond to that noisy signal because it could be the case, you know, it could be the economy's declining right now, let's say. It could be because um, it's just it completely external factors that they're completely outside of the control of the government, or it could be the government's doing a bad job. And if I had to guess, it's probably some, I'm putting some weight on both possibilities. And so it's rational to respond accordingly. And I think, you know, going back to this questions, uh, question for why I would penalize my own uh, representative for the economy that's being controlled more by the president, perhaps, or the central bank and so on, and not by my representative per se, you know, there's also a story to be told about sending a signal to the uh, elites in the given party or to the president. Like we, we are unhappy with the way the economy is going. And there are plenty of ways that the president can try to affect the economy. They, they select who is the head of the central bank. They select the stimulus package. They select, you know, they drive the agenda on how much we should spend, how much we should stimulate the economy and so forth. What kind of changes to the uh, labor market we should pass. So I think for me, the mo a model of a voter in which I know someone is influencing the economy. This is most likely coming from the president. And I'm going to use election to signal how happy or unhappy I am uh, with where the, which direction uh, the economy is going. It's not a completely unreasonable model of, of a voter. Okay, so it's not completely unreasonable, right? But, but I, I would think that if we're going to sort of build from first principles and say we want to model the relationship between the economy and the voting behavior of constituents in congressional elections. The first thing we would say is, well, what are the things that members of the House have control over? And to what extent are voters rewarding or punishing those members for the actions that they themselves take? And what you two are saying is that, no, no, there's this other thing that's happening, is that the president has more control and that voters are rewarding members of the House on the basis of decisions made by the president, recognizing there too that the president's ability to affect the economy, they can do some things for sure, but it too is driven by all kinds of factors that reside well outside of the president's control. And then you want to say, Anthony, that the fact that we observe effects is evidence that the voters are rational, that this all kind of makes sense. I, I mean, I don't, I don't know if I want to go that. I don't want to say that this is a test of voter rationality, but I, but I think you can rationalize this finding pretty easily. So Kramer suggests that it is. Kramer comes in and says, on a number of both the introduction and the conclusion says, part of what's at stake here is our assessments of voter rationality. This isn't just about them flipping coins or just about vote behaving in ways that are patently partisan. I mean, there are two, there are two things you're doubting. One thing is, uh, is it rational to condition voting behavior on uh, the economy? And the other one, is it rational to condition voting behavior in the House on the economy, given that the economy is controlled by the president? So the first one, I think, 
If we think that elections are about anything, about any kind of accountability or selection, then I think we should expect to find that whoever controls the economy is rewarded or punished by whatever happens in the economy. And of course, you know, that the relationship between the economy and the outcomes is, because between the policies and the outcomes uh, is imperfect, but presumably there is one. Otherwise, it would be sort of strange to, uh, to think about what the governments do and why we have all these public policies and, and, and uh, other stuff. So what do you though, make of the fact that the effects are, are concentrated in the year up to the election? Well, are they concentrated? Are they concentrated in the year, uh, or is this that the paper doesn't show that the effects are concentrated? Just that's all he tests. He tests the the election year. That's all he tests. That's which, right. Which, if you were going to pick one year, that is the year that that you would test because that is the most informative year, right? If you think Congress and the president are jointly influencing the economy, and it takes some time for their policies to take effect, then the second year of the House members' term is more informative than the first year, uh, but. He doesn't test it. Even if just looking at the last uh, year is not the best thing to do, uh, even if voters do that because they are somewhat myopic and irrational, we had a conversation on this uh, show about whether that means something, you know, disastrous for the accountability and selection. And the answer is not necessarily. Because, you know, if it's possible for the president to really manipulate the economy perfectly so that the increase in people's income is the largest during their last year, then yes, then this kind of behavior, myopic behavior of the voters is going to lead to presidents who slack off all the time and just manipulate the economy uh, within the last year. But I think I think it's it's impossible to control this so much so perfectly. And then using the last year might be a reasonable proxy that still provides enough incentives for for the presidents to care about the economy. And the finding is not that is not that voters don't care at all about the early years. It's just that they care more about the last year. And of course, in some world in which presidents are aware of this finding and they're intentionally deflating the economy in the early years of their term just to try to make themselves look better at the end in these regressions, like that would be pretty transparent and I suspect that would likely not be an effective strategy. So it would be wrong to then take these regressions literally and say, therefore, what a president should do. I mean, that I think, I think that doesn't follow. It could be that in an equilibrium where presidents are more or less acting in good faith and trying to do a good job, the fourth year turns out to be pretty informative for voters. But don't we have evidence that suggests that Congress is more likely to step in and spend more and stimulate the economy during election years? That there, I mean, there are business cycles to government performance that politicians, though they haven't read Kramer's paper, are behaving as if they did. Um, so there's literature in economics on that, uh, saying that uh, theoretically there should be this kind of business cycles. Even if voters are rational, as long as voters have imperfect information about what's happening in the economy, it would be in the interest of the politicians to inflate uh, the economy, to flood it with money in the last year, show the voters that actually their incomes are going up, and, and, the, election, and the inflation would be realized on the exposed. Empirically, the evidence is very mixed. If you're getting a lot out of the important research shared on this show, there's another University of Chicago Podcast Network show you should check out. It's called Entitled. International lawyers Claudia Flores and Tom Ginsburg have traveled the world getting into the weeds of global human rights debates. On Entitled, they use that expertise to explore the stories and thorny questions around why rights matter and what's the matter with rights. 
Subscribe to Entitled, part of the award-winning University of Chicago Podcast Network. When we think about this study, I think we should think about it less about, well, what do what did we learn about voters' rationality, but more about what kind of predictive power this can give us and not predictive power in terms of like, you know, really can I predict with zero error, but like, you know, how in this informs us about uh, the incoming elections and also what this can tell us about perhaps the incentives that the politicians face. And this paper suggests that even the members of Congress face, it seems that they face a lot of pressure from the voters to sort of affect how the president affects the economy. So they have feel a lot of pressure to either vote for the um, presidential suggestions that uh, go in favor of the economy or block them if they are in the opposition party. Yeah, does, if we were to take this notion seriously, does it suggest then that members of the opposition party of the president have incentives to tank the economy? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's an interesting aspect of this. That, and and it, it mostly goes undiscussed in this paper. It's just, it just seems natural that let's look to see if the president's party does better when things are going well. But if you're not from the president's party, but you're an incumbent, then presumably you want things to go badly. And of course, there are different ways this might manifest itself in, in reality. So if you are Mitch McConnell and you come right out and say, my number one goal is to tank the economy so that I will win elections, presumably that would likely be bad for you. He sort of says even though that. I know, even though he sort of does it, I mean, pretty close to that. He pretty much said like his goal is to sabotage the Obama presidency. And, and we don't know for sure, but probably that was an unwise thing for him to have said. Um, but nevertheless, you know, and nevertheless, if you come, you know, if instead, if you change your tune and you say, look, my goal, even though we're in, even though we're in the minority party right now, my goal is to work with the Democrats and try to compromise and try to figure out how we can make people's lives better and find, you know, like, then maybe that would change. Like, maybe that would actually change the nature of these regression results a little bit. If you saw the minority party actively working with, you know, and maybe that'd be interesting to test somehow, look at different eras where there was more productive compromise going on. So, so I, I don't want to say that it, necess- it has to be the case that what you should do if you're in the minority party or you're not from the president's party is you just tank the economy no matter what. But that is an interesting implication of these results is that there is potentially that perverse incentive. And that's, it's a troubling finding. I mean, so, so it would be interesting to have this study really done, you know, from 1896 till now and see how that actually correlates with, uh, with the perceived polarization in Congress and, and the partisanship in Congress, because uh, it, it does feel this way right now that parties are unwilling to work with the other party as if responding to this kind of behavior of the voters. But I agree with you, Anthony, that in principle, if, if, uh, you know, somehow the voters got convinced that, uh, out, economic outcomes are no longer controlled by the president because we no longer have a lot of executive action opportunities and also any legislation is be, being blocked uh, by the House or by the Supreme Court, then then they should stop wor- stop voting according to those rules and then things would unravel. So I think I think the interplay of of uh, those two forces I think is very interesting. And again, I don't know whether the data would really is really good enough to tell us something more about the story, but I think there's something interesting to investigate there. Yeah, I mean, you would think that this effect would only become exacerbated for the reasons you just described, Viola, right? In a period of heightened polarization today, unlike 1971, wherein if I'm a moderate Democrat, I occupy an ideological space that's, that also has members of the opposition party. 
Whereas today, that's no longer true, that therefore ceding control to the opposite party comes at a greater cost to me, all else equal, right? Because it's the really the bad guys are going to do bad things. And if that's true, that then I have my incentives to tank the economy to the extent that the economy is driving vote shares um, or people's voters' assessments of the quality of the incumbent party, um, the majority party, well, I've, those incentives ought to become all the greater, right? They should become... I don't know, because, you know, if, if I live in a world in which uh, I vote for one party because of this, you know, elite polarization and on some sort of social issues, only one party represents me well and the other one is really a disaster, then, then in situations like this, parties could afford to actually compromise on the economy. You know, after all, we are all better off. The economy is, uh, is, is doing better. So if I'm very secure in my seat because of abortion or gun uh, control or environmental um, approach, then I should be willing to actually vote for the other party's economic policies if they lead to, an, to improved outcomes because voters shouldn't be willing to switch the other party just because we improve the economy. Yeah, I was holding constant Kramer's effect saying, that he, let's imagine that the economy continues to have exactly the same kinds of effect on voting behavior that he documents, and then think about what, in, what, the, what incentives that creates for members of the majority and minority party to compromise. And in a world in which that, that effect is constant, when you've got greater difference between the two parties, the tendency of the minority party to obstruct um, and try to tank the economy should become more pronounced. But our point, I mean, I think that's fair, but our point is that it must be that the effect, I mean, you, it must be that you can't hold the effect constant, that the effect does interact with the behavior of politicians. And if, and with the, if you see yeah. that, the, that the opposing yeah. party is working productively, then you won't penalize those incumbents in the same way that you would if you see that they're just obstructing. Like that, that must be right, even though we don't have any direct evidence on that. Yeah, and I think I think I would go a little bit even further that uh, you know we shouldn't just think about this. This is this is an unchanged feature of the political system. If we somehow manage to change either the institutions or the way voters understand or perceived perceive how uh, the identity of who is in power maps into what they can achieve, then this relationship could weaken. And you know, in the world like today and the system in the U.S. system where you do need the other party to a large extent to push your agenda, we would all be better off if those finding, well, I don't know, this is a bold claim, but we could be better off if those findings didn't hold because of this obstructionist uh, incentives. Now, of course, if those findings don't hold, so if voters completely ignore the economy, then who has, uh, what incentives to work on that? But I would presume that, that most of us would like our else equal to see the economy working pretty well. So I would venture to guess that maybe we would be better off in a world in which voters do not give those incentives to the opposition party to be obstructionist. So Kramer doesn't evaluate how the effects associated with the economy on voting behavior change during periods of high polarization versus low polarization. Even though levels of polarization between the two parties did change quite a bit over the course of the history that he looks at. But he, he does report out that the effects are more pronounced in off-year elections than in presidential elections. The economy seems to really bear on non, in non-presidential years, but that they, they attenuate somewhat in presidential years. I'm wondering what you make of that, and, and particularly how that relates back to the story that we were telling earlier, which is that, well, you know, they're taking cues on presidential performance, and if that's it, 
right? When figuring out how to vote for members of the House, shouldn't the effects be greater during presidential years? Let me try. Let me try one story. Let me see if I can, if you, if you'll buy this. So suppose it's right that we're mostly thinking about the president, and and this is kind of a referendum on the president. You would naively, you'd your first intuition would be it should be bigger in presidential years. But but also there's ideology and there's other stuff. There's issue positions, and most most voters in a world, especially in this current era where the two parties are pretty far apart, most voters, even if they are in the middle somewhere, they already kind of know whether they prefer Biden or Trump on policy matters. And so there's going to be more partisan voting in those presidential years because you have the clear, you have some clear, stark choice to be made on the on platforms. In the midterm. We already know who's going to be president for the next two years. But if I think Joe Biden's doing a bad job, even if I voted for Joe Biden, I can vote for Republicans in congressional elections to at least at least make it harder for him to continue doing the things that might be harming the economy. I'm not thinking about this kind of ideological disagreement between the parties. I'm thinking about: Do I want to make it easier or harder for Biden to implement his agenda? Do I want to make him? Do I want to force him to compromise more uh, with the Republicans, or do I want to you know give him free reign to do whatever he wants? Was that a crazy? Well, you seem skeptical. <laughs> no, I'm trying to get my head around it. It's an interesting story, right? I, I want to give you your best shot, right? You're saying when I elect you, dear president, right? And so I'm gonna, I'm not gonna pay much. I'm just gonna vote uh, for the person who I like the most, and I'm gonna vote straight party tickets all the way through. Um, but that, and obviously, I'm, I'm simplifying. Obviously, there's a bit of both going on. But yes, but yes, yeah, that's well. So. so I think I would completely buy your story if we only had one-term presidents. I think the two terms complicate the issue, and I don't think Kramer looks separately at the two terms. So let me let me explain my thinking. So if we had only one-term presidents, then what happens is we have new elections、uh, for president, and I have to evaluate the person based on how her party. Did last、uh, in the last、uh, four years, and what kind of person that is. And at that point, you know, the correlation between how the party did on the economy in the past and how this particular person will do on the economy is not extremely strong. There is some, but it's not extremely strong. So I have those those other factors、uh, coming in, and then in the midterm election, I already know how this particular person is performing, and now I either like it or not, and now I'm either trying to constrain this person or actually ease their const-、uh, legislative constraints so that they can、uh, pass even more,、um, you know,、uh, changes into the to the economy. Now, when we have two,、uh, you know, possibility of two-term presidents, then you know what happens during the presidential election、uh, for for the second term. You know, at that time, I already know this person. I know what this person has done, so I should really be paying attention to the economy. And I wonder to what extent he would find these kind of effects if he separated、uh, the first and versus second term presidential elections. Or in the case of FDR, the third and the fourth. <laughs> <laughs> Or Donald Trump, you know, <laughs> the fifth. Yeah, that's and the a、sixth. good idea. So you're so you're saying if we if we if we held out the open seat races, open seat presidential years, then、yes. we should see very little effect of the econ- of economic performance. In the midterm years, we should see some, and maybe we should see the most in presidential years when an incumbent is running for re-election. I think that would be that would be a prediction of the story you told us. Or at least they should be maybe the midterms and those ones should be comparable or something. But I, I don't know. I don't think we've said the word inflation at any point in this conversation. But inflation is of course a big thing on people's minds, and this paper has something to say about inflation in that real income. 
bakes in inflation in some sense, right? Real income says how much, you know, how much, what's your income relative to inflation? He also, in these regressions, includes, in some of them, he includes raw income and he also includes prices. So he includes some measure. And essentially what he finds is that the thing that really matters is this real income thing. And so it's not, it's not that inflation per se appears to correlate with outcomes, but real income does. And so to the extent that inflation is not matched by increases in income, uh, inflation should matter a lot. Maybe that was, that was probably already obvious, I hope, to our listeners, but I, want, I felt like it was worth saying out loud. Do we want to say more about what implications that has for 2022? We've got pretty high inflation right now. We've got inc- real incomes that aren't growing in proportion to inflation. And again, the, th- the thing that Biden, and the Dem- that Biden and the Democrats have going for them is a remarkably low unemployment rate. Which is why I think, again, if you take the findings from this paper seriously and apply them to the present context, you'd say Democrats are in trouble in the upcoming election. And again, you might say, I mean, to to the extent if there's really high unemployment, that's going to be baked into like average real incomes to some extent. But but we but but Kramer doesn't find that unemployment per se matters. He just finds that average real incomes matter. And so. So to, to the extent that lots of people have jobs who want them, that's but if right. real incomes are low, that's not going to be much solace for the Democrats in 2022. Although I'm told we have this uh, Inflation Reduction Act that yes. is just going to solve all the problems. <laughs> I'm, told, I'm told that more subsidies to buy electric cars is going to somehow reduce inflation. Mm-hmm. No, but uh, that's interesting that, you know, you're bringing this up. I think, <laughs> you know, one way to interpret what's happening in uh, this entire language uh, would be through the lenses of this paper that the Democrats are very aware of, of what might happen and they are trying to change the narrative. They are trying to say, look, it takes time for things to work. And here's this huge package that we passed to actually affect the, econo- the economy and the Republicans did not contribute to that in any way. So if they come to power, uh, even that might go away. And in the long run, we all have inflation. So, you know, it seems that politicians are acutely aware of this kind of um, voting behavior by the voters. But sitting right behind these findings, though, is a model of politics wherein whether they try or not, or what they faced in terms of real world challenges is largely inconsequential. What matters at the end of the day, is whether or not you actually deliver on a set of economic indicators. And you may have delivered having done nothing at all. You might have just gotten lucky, in which case you'll get, you'll get rewarded. Or you may try your damnedest and do everything that the finest minds in America tell you to do, right? And if it doesn't have the effect of turning the economy around, you're going to be punished. That there's a kind of realism baked into these politics that says... Your intent or your effort are neither here nor there. It ultimately, what ultimately matters is um, economic performance itself. I have a hard time rationalizing the Inflation Reduction Act as as Democrats thinking about thinking about what voters want and really trying to win the 2022 midterms. It looks a lot. It looks to me a lot more like uh, they just have stuff that they wanted to do, like subsidies for electric cars and healthcare subsidies and raising taxes, which. All of those could be a good idea. It's not obvious that they're they're uh, reducing inflation, and it's not obvious that they're going to win over lots of voters. If if their goal was to say let's try to make live the you know lives better for the median voter, those are not obviously the things they would have done. But they didn't call it. They no longer call it Build Back 
better. They call it the Inflation Reduction Act. So I completely agree with you that the first time I, I heard this phrase, I was like, what's going on? <laughs> Where, how, how can they reduce inflation using this bill? But uh, so I'm not arguing that this bill is indeed going to reduce inflation, but <laughs> the posture, the political posture they have adopted, and it seems that this is the posture that allowed them to get uh, enough votes on the Democratic side, is a posture of we care about inflation and we are the ones to solve this problem. Yeah, I find it offensive. And I suspect a lot of regular voters find it offensive as well. Like, like they think we're so stupid that, that if we just see that they put Inflation Reduction Act on the <laughs> top of the piece of paper, that we'll be like, oh, look, they're working hard. Like, that's just, I just can't imagine that's going to work. And maybe, again, you're going to accuse me of putting too much faith in uh, regular voters here, but I just can't imagine that people are so naive that they're going to be fooled by that. Though, on the other hand, uh, if for some reason inflation tapers off in the next few months, just before the election, you know, it doesn't have to go back to zero or 2%, it could just, like, you know, go from nine to, let's say, seven or six. Then they can stand up and claim, hey, we did something and this is why inflation is going down. You know, there's a paper that um, we might, I don't know, we were talking about covering on our show at some point now called placebo reforms, which exactly has this effect that if voters, you know, try to think about how they can justify the, the, the things, the economic things that they see outside by seeing what legislation and what actions uh, were taken by the government, then they are likely to conclude if, you know, if they see inflation going down suddenly and there was some bill passed that perhaps there's some relationship and then it's rational on their side to, uh, to, 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 you know, vote in higher numbers for Democrats. So who knows? Let's see. <laughs> I think they should just say nothing. They, they should, it would be better for them to just say nothing. If they come out and say the reason inflation went down is because we passed that bill <laughs> with the uh, billions of dollars of subsidies for, for electric vehicles, like they, they, that, that, I think everyone will see through that. So, oh well. <laughs> I just, I just don't think voters are as stupid as uh, the politicians seem to think they are. We need to find a good paper on credit claiming, right? Like one that, says what is the, the effect of credible forms and non-credible forms of credit claiming on downstream electoral outcomes. But it would be interesting to see whether or not, you know, if I come out and simply say I've delivered you all that is good and my enemy is responsible for all that is bad, does that in anywhere bear upon people's independent thinking? Will, do you have a bottom line from this paper? Well, um, I do I have a bottom line? Where I'm left is at once thinking that the findings are um, intuitive and enduring and important, but then also still struggling to evaluate what they're indicative of. Like, what is their, what is their significance as it relates to actual individual voting behavior? So... You know, like the main takeaway for me is that someone 50 years ago started with a pretty reasonable hypothesis. If we think that elections are about something real, then then they should be at least partially uh, about the economy and people's well-being, their incomes. And uh, I think the paper convincingly demonstrates that in that data set, this relationship exists. Now, of course, there's very few observations and he tests uh, five different hypotheses and so on. But, but within that data set, that's, that's the picture that comes out and, and seems to be consistent with, with what I think we would expect. And if I were to speculate, I would say, um, this relationship is, is, is going to hold for, for the next, uh, you know, for the foreseeable future. So I do 
think Democrats will be harmed by the high inflation in this electoral cycle. Now that I have my soapbox for a second, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rant for just one second, which is um, this was a really good idea to look at aggregate election returns. There were lots of people before this who were looking just at survey data, for example, and they were saying things like, oh, the voters are really partisan. They don't have the same views that I think they should have, and therefore maybe democracy doesn't work as well as it should. And Gerald Kramer's idea was, well, let's look at the aggregate election returns and see if they, they seem to be sensible. Do aggregate election returns respond to the things that you might think uh, they should? And the answer is yes. Um, and the answer is that regardless of maybe there are some voters out there who are way too partisan maybe there are some voters out there who are really irrational and nevertheless the aggregate election results respond as if uh, we've got a bunch of pretty sensible moderate rational voters making the decision and they're they're voting on the basis of uh, which party seems to be doing a good job handling the economy and maybe that's good for largely setting incentives and selecting better politicians and so forth and so so i find this to be I find this to be reassuring evidence that, that at least, you know, democratic accountability is working at least, at least somewhat the way it's supposed to. And there have been, there's now since been a lot of follow-on evidence showing that indeed aggregate election results seem to work reasonably well and selection accountability seem to work reasonably well. So this was a very good idea to have done this to begin with. And the results kind of go the way that you would expect if democracy is functioning in a reasonably healthy way. And even though now it maybe seems like an obvious thing to do, we still, we still get away from that from time to time. We, we look just at the survey data or we just look at Twitter and we say, look at, how, look at how irrational or partisan or dumb the voters are. Democracy must be broken. And, and I don't think that's right. And I think it's good to point back to evidence like this and say, um, despite the things you're seeing on Twitter, um, you know, the economy seems to correspond with election results in more or less the way you would expect if voters are being reasonable. And so I like this paper um, for, for all of those reasons, and I think, I think that's a point worth reemphasizing. Thanks for listening to Not Another Politics Podcast. Our show is a podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy and is produced by Matt Hodap. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.